So as of this recording, uh, the Donald has announced that even though he is an election denier, and even though he was a divisive and, and horribly uh, rude person while president, he is running for president, which, of course, makes the, the red trickle of last week uh, even less exciting, um, because all of it just seems to be a big game, a big circus, a big bit of confusion. I think I tweeted out somewhere, you know, less Fox News, more Psalm 109. And uh, that is as one who lives in a blue state uh, that is as blue as blue can get. I had someone else reach out to me recently. Uh, I think it was yesterday. Just shot me an email. I don't even remember who it is. Um, but they're like, yeah, I'm, I'm from Michigan. It seems like we live in the same kind of world. You know, we have to. And people are telling me I should move to Florida because that's what conservatives need to do is, is move to places where conservatives are. What do you think there? So maybe that's a nice place for the conversation to start, Dr. Koontz. Like uh, in lieu of all of that circus I just mentioned, uh, what is the right tact for the conservative minded, realistic minded Christian right now? Is the sky falling? Uh, is the January 6th committee over? Uh, is Nancy gone? Uh, I don't know. What do you want to talk about? The January 6th committee, the the theater surrounding it is is perhaps petered out. It did, it did not play out the way that they wanted it to. I'm sure it will continue to hang over a variety of parties. It's why, for example, even if you have some sort of proud boy affiliation with you know the, the Republican Party of Florida or something that has to be publicly disavowed so the January 6th committee is our nation's current version of a blacklist we are going through a sort of reverse of what was happening in the late 40s and early 50s to mid 50s McCarthy dies in 1957 and in that time, the right was ascendant ideologically in the United States. And in God We Trust, on the coinage was part of that, and, and lots of things were part of that. And we're going through something that is not only opposite, but far more virulent. Now, if you live in a, in a, in a, in a so-called red state, and that nomenclature's history is important, but just to answer your question initially, if you live in a so-called red state, what you're dealing with therefore is simply time delay you're not you're not dealing with let's call it a fortress except in certain circumstances or or respects so just compare for example nebraska or indiana to florida one big difference that you have between midwestern red states and florida is that florida which we'll talk about a little bit later this week some of its history has a, a history of resistance to the left. Most of the United States of America does not, which is how Illinois went from actually being a toss-up or California went from being generally in presidential elections a safe Republican state. I mean, very safe. Like New York's going to go to the Democrats. California's going to go to the Republicans. What else is in play? Safe. In our lifetimes. So... I mean, within my lifetime, California has been a, a so-called red state in presidential elections. So what you're dealing with, I think, always, honestly, is time delay, with the exception of a, of a place or a set of circumstances where people are accustomed to resistance. And 
several things are unique about Florida. One thing that we're not going to talk about this week largely, but does matter a lot for state and national politics, is that Florida's Hispanic voters are generally virulently anti-communist, which is just not true for most of the American electorate. I mean, most of us don't have not only experience, but also fervent multi-generational convictions concerning communism. I mean, if I say communism, most people who are not, you know, above the age of 80 have any memory of that being a common talking point and thing that you can just dismiss immediately in American public life because the 60s changed that. You know, I mean, they certain things are still off limits, obviously, for someone running for office, but the 60s change a lot. And that's that's what we're beginning to dig into both this week and then as we go forward talking about particularly religious denominations. So I I don't think that moving to a red state in and of itself is a solution. And the reason that I mean, the reasons that people moved out of New York, out of Illinois, out of Pennsylvania, out of wherever in the past three years. I'm sure some of that, I know some of that is due to ideological conviction. A lot of that is due to economic realities. So there are Democrats moving to Florida too from New York, and they're doing it because it's a cheaper place to live in many respects, or you can get more life for less money. You know, people are moving out of Colorado for that reason, even though we have plenty of Californians moving in here. So those realities are are not entirely ideological and because of that, you're even more on simply on a time delay in most cases from other parts of the country. Like, so saying that, well, you moved here, so now you're fine. Well, you didn't move. No one moved back to America before no fault divorce. No one moved back to America with a much higher fertility rate. No one moved back to an America where families are generally ordering themselves so that the mother can be with the children. So since you didn't do that, I mean, you might be personally doing that, but that that state is not on offer. You can't move somewhere and fix your problems via electoral politics because your problems are are political, but they are far more deeply cultural or metapolitical, whatever adjective you want to use. So you're going to say like, well, I left Illinois and I went to whatever. Iowa is close. <laughs> I left Illinois and I went to Arizona or Florida. That's probably happens a lot more or Tennessee, right? Well, you probably did that because of a lack of a state income tax or property values or something. And that's fine. Just be honest about that. Don't don't say that you moved to like Tennessee or you moved to Florida and now your life is just peachy keen because you have problems that are far, far deeper than J.B. Pritzker. It makes me think about uh, my my favorite what, uh, whipping target, uh, the screen. And so wherever you move, the ubiquity of the cult that worships talking images and cannot imagine life without them and skewers you with hatred and shunning if you yourself uh, suggest that maybe life without them would be better. Uh, right. That's not going anywhere anytime soon. Right. Uh, the zombie apocalypse is is all around, and whether they're saying <laughs> red or yeah. blue, it, they're right. still they're still taking their their marching orders from uh, the powers that be, the they uh, that are out there wielding us toward a, a greater and greater destruction. 
which, you know, in the other news, I guess, you know, uh, Russia, Russia, China, China, uh, war, war, 37 billion to Ukraine, uh, FTP collapses. I guess there was some money laundering going on there. Uh, mail-in ballots definitely seem to be a problem, but what do you expect? I mean, I think I called it. They're, they're going to steal it. I said that months ago. Uh, and, and so, yeah, how do you avoid this? Uh, are you really going to uh, um, uh, secede from the union uh, as Florida? Uh, as Texas, whereas Texas right now is vying to be kind of the new Silicon Valley. You think that's going to make you more conservative? Uh, it's the, the, the piece has become, as we've said before on the show, too big for a single mind to handle. The game's too big for a single mind to play. And so your locality, uh, what is in your neighborhood? Uh, what congregation do you go to? Uh, is that congregation committed to things that will endure? And of course, if you look at that battle, honestly, you're going to find out that a lot of what we just talked about is a problem there, too. <laughs> yeah, uh, right. Yeah. Uh, but, but there is a place, a battlefield, where you can actually say something, do something. You know, your tweet's just going to be lost in the ethersphere. But right. uh, a conversation after church about, about real things like family, like the role of woman, like the role of man. I mean, that that's where the building can begin to take place. Yeah, and the idea that you live in a a certain in in a state that votes a certain kind of a way, especially in national elections, that's what red state and blue state means. It doesn't it doesn't account for counties or diversity within the state electorally or anything like that. The idea there is is sort of messed up in in two distinct ways. One is the idea that you have one because you're so used to being a consumer and especially consuming proxy victories and defeats because of sports that you think of these things as like real life sports. So it's, it's even more real than when you drop whatever amount of money on a NFL home game instead. Now, you know, your team wins or, or your team has lost or your team is picking up steam as we head down the stretch or whatever the case may be. And that is a way of looking at life that's going to fundamentally make you passive in an area in which you should be active. So it's it's fine to be passive in life and receiving the grace of God. It is horrible to be passive in life in the things that you need to take care of or the things that if you exerted yourself more would benefit your neighbor far more than they do. And it's that sense of passivity that I think is induced by red state, blue state, because you just, you just move and now you're on the magic dirt of a red state. And that magic dirt is going to keep all of the kids who are on, you know, the internet being groomed to become various horrible things from becoming those various horrible things, because this is a red state. So there's a there's a passivity that then belies the activity, especially demonic activity underneath it. In addition to that, there's also the problem of thinking th there's a hollowness, to be honest with you, to a lot of the rhetoric on the right that generally has little to no action accompanying it. So saying make America great again, I mean, you've you've already lost at the point where something like Oregon during COVID can even exist, right? So calling, I mean, that, that's that's why we've said before on the show, I mean, calling yourself conservative doesn't even quite cut it anymore because I don't, I don't want to conserve 
you know, 2017 or 20, much less 2020. I mean, there's, what is there worth conserving about that? And, and the idea that America is divided up into red states and blue states, not only plays into this sort of basically like sports ball understanding of the world, but it also is, I mean, like <laughs> it's a concession in and of itself. It's like saying your city has no go zones. Well, why don't you just fix the crime problem? Why are you letting entire sectors of your own hometown be conceded to criminals? Why would you do that? So why are you saying that it's, we have 50 states, but I would never, ever live in like 21 of them or whatever your number may be, right? And that's fine if like you don't like snow or something, but <laughs> it's not fine if you're like, well, they don't, they just, there's no law and order there or they don't follow the constitution or they aren't even worried about voting anymore. They just do ballot harvesting. I mean, that's, that's Colorado, that's Oregon, that's, that's many generally democratically controlled states. It's just kind of a game of ballots, sending out tons of ballots, collecting ballots. That's the whole thing, especially since COVID, but it was the case before COVID in many places. So saying that, well, it's okay, you know, like Illinois can just kind of go to hell in a handbasket, no big deal. Not only do you not want to hear that if you, for whatever set of reasons, need to continue living in Illinois, but it's also, it makes a shambles of the notion of being a union, which like, I'm not saying this because I don't know that it's in shambles. I'm saying this because it's an indictment of the idea that anyone is making anything great again to say that, well, it's it's fine because in certain places, like you can't, you kind of can't do anything in daily life without the government's permission, but that's just the way California is. Why would, why did, how did that happen? You know, why would you let that happen? You know, well, this is my city, but I, I can't go in a quarter of it because... I have the wrong skin color for those neighborhoods. How can that happen? You know, I, I can't go over here because, you know, my, even homeschoolers have to be vaccinated against COVID in, in this state. How did this happen? Right? I mean, the only realm of American life where we have simultaneously become more constitutional and more unified is in gun law, which we talked about a long time ago with, with Pastor Grills. Only there have we both made progress and made progress nationwide. But generally, we just permit increasing insanity and the idea that, well, that's just the way it is in a blue state and I escaped that. That's certainly fine for an individual. I mean, what can an individual do on most levels? I think a lot of that has to do with economics, like I said. But the idea that somehow we can go on living this way, I, I don't see that as tenable. You just take the example of abortion, your state, my state, abortion is like fine forever now. I mean, in Colorado, like, I think it's, I think it's fine up to birth and, and probably obviously including birth, you know, I mean, I'm just open infanticide probably going on. Right. If that's the case, how can somebody sit in Florida and be like, this is fine. You know, oh, well, they only have a 15 week ban, you know, so maybe let's pick somewhere more hardcore like Mississippi or Alabama. It's fine. You know, babies are not being killed here. It's, you know, they get killed in Illinois. That's a blue state. I mean, that's <laughs> why don't you just say that's another universe with totally different rules? Because that's really what you're saying. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting because in one way, that's where I've I've had to settle, actually, is that it is a different universe, that the platonic dream of the union uh, and even the platonic dream of the state 
that Illinois is a thing is a story I have to believe for it to have power. And I'm not saying that they can't come with guns if I don't pay my taxes. I'm saying, you know, what is it to me if I dwell in Bethlehem and the king of Damascus is crazy? Uh, so be it. You know, I, I what I need to do is make sure that Bethlehem has a wall if I can. And it's I'm not saying that that's good. I'm not saying, yeah, yeah. I'm glad for the country right. dividing. But the, the emphasis coming more and more to what is real, which means things that are not a story I can't see with my eyes or hear with my ears from a living human being. And so screens don't count. Newspaper doesn't count. Like it's got to be within walking distance or even driving distance, which still that changes things quite a bit too. But driving distance of my home, those things do matter, especially if it's going to be an issue like abortion. So um, not that I want abortion across the country. I, I clearly, I, I think, I hope it'd be obvious that, that I'm, I'm quite pro-life. And I believe that if you're shedding innocent blood on your land, it's going to come back and, and burn you at some yeah. point. Um, right. So here, here in Illinois, where indeed uh, uh, comorbidity in chief, uh, Mr. Prisker, uh, has uh, made it his, his campaign promise and goal to have abortion be uh, free, easy, fast, and not rare at all. Uh, it, well, Rockford doesn't have a clinic. Hasn't had one for a long time. So this is, of course, the battleground right now where they're going to try to put it. And, and it probably will get here, I would wager. But uh, my prayers uh, are far more about about that uh, than, say, about, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, pick one of the other states that just had their, what was it? Um, it was it uh, Montana uh, that had the law that, you know, you think of all places in Montana could have a, a law on abortion that would pass, but it didn't. Um so it is, you know, my, my prayers are, are with the people in Montana, but uh, yeah. the, the land I live in where the innocent blood is being shed uh, is, is either here or not here. It's not somewhere far away. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if that, if that is, is ultimately helpful, um, but it's, it's a result of the fragmenting, which has been a, a theme of the show uh, all the way back to yeah. see the fragmenting is going to continue and that on the one hand, you know, yeah, it'd be great if you could stop it, but you can't. So at some point, you've got to embrace it and then uh, seize uh, the the momentum where you are, if you can, and, yeah. and do it for good. We ha- we have listeners who I I think are or have been or are are quickly becoming, well, let's say, post fragmentation. So there are there are still extant structures, including the national government, that they are working through or inside of or or also despite and if you're if you're interested in that if you're interested on a on something that is that is not entirely or utterly local in its constitution whether it's a state or it's a it's a national group of some kind or it's the national government whatever the case may be i think you do have to learn what these pressure points are in order to work coherently rather than frustrating yourself, you know, constantly referring with outrage, for instance, to how this or that action is unconstitutional. Well, of course it is, right? So so what else matters? <laughs> what else can you talk about? Or, or what else has saliency or or gets gets a hold of people's imaginations when you talk about it that way? Because the reason that they're gonna, you know, give you a little news clip of Joe Biden, you know, with utter mental incoherence, signing an executive order or talking about Zelensky or whatever, 
is to give you a sense of rule and immediacy, right? It's it's not there just there are plenty of other things they could have covered that day. You know, you can you can go every morning Eastern Standard Time and and find a list of the things the president is going to do that day. And it may be that the thing that he does that day isn't just not televised that matters the most. It it may not even be on that list, right? So the things that are the things that are shown to you are shown to you in order to induce passivity. So if you're trying to move beyond passivity, whether you're on a local level or some other level of life, you you do have to think about what the what the weak points are, what the pressure points are on a local level. It might be how do I develop a friendship since I didn't learn how to do that because I've been on screens my whole life or whatever your problem may be or other people's problems may be. So I think one thing that we're certainly developing into um, on the show, but also as a group of people is trying to go beyond the fragmentation, not trying to reverse it, but accepting its existence and then doing something in that existence that is already necessarily fragmented. And I, I don't think that in that case, naive repetition of political talking points about America and this great country and stuff like that, that, that could be very politically useful as a set of slogans. It's also very hollow, you know, at this point. Yeah. The, the, yeah. the slogan I'm concerned with is uh, uh, cheap energy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and I totally get your point and, and agree with it that just uh, mom, apple pie and, and the Captain America dream is, is a meme and yeah. trying to kind of be the, the bizarro rage screamer saying, you know, why, what happened? How could you like, th this isn't, this isn't manly. So, you know, wake up and uh, smell the coffee, have a sip yeah. and get to work. Um, but then the work is, uh, the, the digital dollar is coming down the pike. Uh, the medical tyranny is not going away. Uh, MRNA flu COVID mixture vaccines coming out, even though at the same time, Moderna is recognizing that, Oh wait, maybe there were some problems. Nonetheless, uh, you still got a mask in most hospitals. Uh, if I call the man, I went to the library yesterday and, and all the librarians masking as poor, poor people. Uh, it's like, Oh, what are you doing? So all of that's, and, and then oil, you know, oil and diesel particularly, which is made from oil that, uh, the U S crude is not always able to get, but guess who has it? It's called Russia. Um, you know, what's that going to do, uh, when the Northeast is heated by the same oil, uh, not, not, uh, natural gas. They don't want natural gas, no pipelines, please. Uh, green environment only, but the winter's coming. Uh, so things on the shelves are going to get more expensive dollar inflation. It's only going to continue to go up. So that, that's the game that matters. And it doesn't matter to me so much for the political side of it. Although I'd like to think that, that a Republican Congress and Senate could have done some things to slow stuff down. doesn't mean they would have. And, and, uh, it's neither here nor there. Yeah. What's, what's here is, uh, realizing that the, the belt is going to have to get tight and, girding up your heart and your grit to live with less, to um, complain less, to pray more, uh, to take what little you have and turn it into something that is is worth sharing and to be aware that that's, that's the best life has to offer 
actually, and that you forgot about that because you were too busy watching TV and thought the best life had to offer was me watching someone else live and me watching someone else have an adventure, me watching someone else be the hero. Uh, now you get to be the one. And that means fathers uh, stand with your children, be honest with them about what's going on. And we had a conversation uh, with the family a couple nights ago about Christmas. And we just said, look, like, you know, we, we have enough in, in savings. We could go out and just spend a bunch of money on, you know, cheap clothes and stuff that'll break in a year and, all, you know, plastic stuff that we have to throw away. But with the way the world's looking right now, uh, it just doesn't seem like that's a wise decision. It, it, it makes more sense to start thinking about longevity, start thinking about uh, what, what is Christmas about? Is it about a tree? Is it about presents? Uh, and so, you know, if we're going to give you anything for Christmas, we, we really want to get you the kind of things that you might even give to your own kids. So when you make up your lists, which the kids are always going to make up their lists, you know, keep that in mind and don't have your hopes be too high for a bunch of everything random and broken uh, under under the tree. And and they took it really well. It was an amazing conversation. Uh, they 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 got nervous, but then I was able to promise them, you know, no, Jesus is in charge of all this. We're just going to live a little differently than we have in the past. And uh, and maybe you know, Jesus will have mercy, and we won't see as much as we think we will. But look, look, we just ate. Look at what we just ate, guys. That's the prayer. That's the goal. So we're going to have this much food in February. You know, <laughs> and they're like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so like you know, t- t- that's the adventure that's the real game is uh, the the community that you have, the people that you have helping them to see what's real and then be grateful for what we do have. You know, I tell you every morning when I, uh, when I let go of that number two and it sinks down into the water and I can just make it fly away with the press of a button. I mean, golly, uh, what a gift that sure beats being a slave on a galley. I'll tell you. I, I, I got nothing after that. I got nothing. You can't follow it. <laughs> Well, civil piety. Do, do slaves on galleys do it for the civil piety or do it because they're scourged if they won't do it? Well, I mean, the the reason that people would remain passive is because there is some set of pieties that have been so deeply inculcated in them that just the watching suffices. And I think that when you're looking at both the United States now but also during our the inverse of today, which is, let's say, the early 1950s in so many ways, what you're looking at are the exercise of these various pieties. Our pieties are different because we live on the other side of a cleft, and that's the case that I'm going to make over the next several months about the importance of not just the 1960s as a set of years, but about the things that happen really throughout the Western world in the 60s and 70s that still determine what our pieties are, which differ so much from our grandparents and certainly from our great-grandparents' pieties. Piety, I'm not using as an entirely hollow word. I think there's always some substance there that causes it to be convincing to people. So civil pieties may be deference to figures. So we used to have automatic deference to George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, after a while, Christopher Columbus. Now our automatic deference is to Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks, 
increasingly, it, it, especially if your child is educated in public school, it's going to be Harvey Milk. So various figures of what's called the civil rights era, usually capital C, capital R, capital E. And those pieties are what I'm I'm interested in seeing when they were still heresies. Because when something is denoted as a heresy, it's generally easier to see what its weak points are, both as a set of convictions, but also as something that that a person could actually go around practicing. So just to start this off, and maybe we'll talk about the Johns Committee in Florida, maybe we won't, because there's enough broad stuff to discuss here that will carry us into discussion of an actual church with its pieties, but it's it's succumbing to other pieties in the case of the Roman Catholic Church in the 20th century. So one of these pieties that that we now have is the piety about the identity of homosexual love with heterosexual love. It's it's all the same. Love is love, and then the the adjective appended before the first love in that sentence could be anything. In fact, it's an always expanding menu of options for you as to your your gender, your gender expression, and then your your love interests, your romantic interests. So as that menu expands, we have to take in more and more people. The drop-down menu gets bigger when you have to fill in an online form, but it's all fine, right? There's a time in which all of that is that is basically not marital love, right? Heterosexual married love is in some measure in the United States, I mean, illegal. Not all of it prosecuted, but but all of it in in some way illegal. And that time is is not that long ago. So when you think about that kind of civil piety that's now expressed in our men's national team is going to the, the World Cup being held in Qatar and they have a you know a version of their national team shield with the trans i don't know augmented pride flag colors <laughs> festooning everything all over their training camp in Qatar as i guess some sort of extremely proud and brave protest against Qatar's abiding generally by Islamic law and and forbidding homosexuality. If that's our piety now, then our piety used to be totally different. So how does that shift? And part of the reason that I look at these things is, is not just because it's interesting to see how much has changed. It's also, therefore, to open up a sense of possibility for the future. So let me just set up where this is in, say, the 50s and 60s, and then that'll give us a sense of what we can talk about regarding the future. There are throughout the United States, as we mentioned last time, little state versions of the longstanding House on American Activities Committee, which is eventually chaired by Joe McCarthy from Wisconsin, and and he became famous. His predecessors did not, his his successors did not, and his Senate counterpart, James Eastland from Mississippi, did not. And certainly these little state versions did not. They existed throughout the country. Not everywhere, you know. Massachusetts <laughs> was liberal then too. It didn't. It didn't have one of these, but but many states did. Ohio, you know, I think California had one. Mississippi, Florida, and the one in Florida was called the Johns Committee for its chairman Charlie Johns. What the Johns Committee 
begins to investigate is something that is certainly way outside the realm of current piety, which is an idea that is very common on the right in America at the time that what would later be called with piety, the civil rights movement is thoroughly infiltrated by communists. So this is kind of a commonplace on the right. If you read the literature of the time, Lutherans may be interested in Alfred Raywinkle's book on communism from after the second world war. He explicitly mentions this, that injustice, Raywinkle being you know, from Wisconsin. So he doesn't really have a dog in the fight on a state level, but he says, Blacks in the United States have suffered injustice. Here's what should be done. I think he favors some limited form of, of integration, legal integration. and But he says they are therefore ripe for communist infiltration. So the Johns Committee is looking into this because in the 1930s, which we talked about with the Dust Bowl and the Okies and stuff, there are lots of other things going on politically. And, and one is a great aggressiveness and optimism on the part of the Communist Party USA about its future prospects in the United States. So they will go down to a textile mill in North Carolina or one of the plants that spring up in, in places like Florida and California during World War II, and they will try to organize the workers. So you end up with a fair proportion of people who will later be in things like the NAACP, National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, and, and other similar organizations who at one time or another are, I mean, in the strict sense of the word, card-carrying communists for various reasons. But one of one of those reasons is the promise that, that the Communist Party makes that they will promote full racial integration across the United States. The Johns Committee is originally formed in the mid-1950s to investigate communist links, particularly to the NAACP in Florida. What they quickly come up with is that those do exist in some measure, but what is an even bigger problem is communist infiltration of the education system from elementary school all the way up to like University of Florida. And so what's interesting here is that you're going to get several, not only is there piety about the, I don't know, moral standing of MLK Jr., but you're also going to get piety about teachers and piety about education in and of itself as a value. I mean, it, formal education, not just knowing things, but having degrees and credentials and stuff. And what's what's interesting is that in the mid-1950s, the Johns Committee will hold hearings in places like Gainesville, which is where University of Florida is. They hold hearings about high school and uh, elementary school teachers in Tampa. And they hold hearings about communist links to, to various various groups in Miami, which is obviously their, their biggest city. What they find consistently is that where there is leftist political activity, there are almost always people who are homosexual and that this is something that in inside of that group is is not hidden. So the the dean of boys, sort of a vice principal, sort of a figure at the largest high school in Tampa, turns out to be a, a homosexual, I mean, active and, and sort of predatory. At the time in the 1950s, the terror on the left is that these things would be released. And by left, we mean like actually leftist. We don't mean like Democrat, Republican, because in the 1950s, there's no, 
real difference between the two parties on public sexual morality. So the people who are actually convinced leftists in a in a term that would be recognizable today and with positions that would be recognizable today are really scared that this is going to be revealed, right? So this is year this is decades before shout your abortion or public pride parades anywhere or anything like that. So they're terrified that this is going to be revealed. As these things begin to come up more and more, the Johns Committee makes what I think is a terrible mistake in the early 1960s, and they produce a report that is so detailed, I'll just leave it at that, that it's actually sold by homosexuals as something they would enjoy reading. <laughs> um, and that that mistake is not just that it gets mocked today. So if you look up anything about the Johns Committee or the group of rural legislators who were the backbone of it, which is called the pork chop gang by its enemies, obviously. You're gonna you're just gonna find mockery. Okay. It's 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 actually worse than McCarthy because it's smaller than McCarthy and whatever. So no one even cares. So it's just you it's just decried. What's interesting is that they consistently find a link between a certain form of sexual deviancy with a desire to completely change the nature of American institutions, whether you're talking about what children learn in school to their relationship to their parents. So in the 50s, you get a lot of, as you are today, actually, you're getting a lot of hotly contested school board elections in Florida because of the work of the Johns Committee, parents feel that they are increasingly losing control of their children's education in both schools and in universities. So there are there are both parallels, but it's it's in many ways an upside down world. Because what the Johns Committee revealed about certain subcultures is that they were just that. They were just subcultures. Today, especially if you're in a blue state, but I think if you're anywhere to one degree or another, you are the subculture. And so revelation that you exist can itself be damning, right? (laughs) What if they took anything you've ever said on the internet and and then, you know, put it out to your employer. I mean, many of you would be fired. <laughs> because your employer doesn't like your opinions and your opinions are kind of shameful. So it's 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 fascinating to me to read about a time before the pieties or before, let's say, the civil religion has completely changed because you find many of the same dynamics. So there's, there's shame in being heterodox. There's a great deal of secrecy surrounding the fact that you don't agree with most people. There's a great desire to change everything in front of you. I mean, like if I read enough about communist activists in the United States, sometimes I'm like, I completely understand where they're coming from. Not not at all from a substantive point, but like the the way that they have to lead their lives or the way that other people think about many of the things that they think, I completely understand them. It's just that I'm on the other side of a lot of work that they did that in 1950s terms has changed American civil piety from whatever it was then to things that in the 1950s were almost distinctive only of the Communist Party USA. Yeah, things that, that biblically speaking, are abominations, right? Uh, right. And the I mean, the idea that that it was an abomination or that Christians were active in opposing these things 
is is brought up almost as as quaint or foreboding or something like that, but it's never really discussed or taken seriously as if Christians weren't and haven't always been at least nominal Christians, certainly a majority of the American electorate anywhere. So the epilogue of the main book about the Johns Committee that you can get by a lady named Stacy Brauchman is about a woman named Anita Bryant, which a very small number of listeners may actually be somewhat familiar with. She had been Miss Florida. And in the 1970s, by about the end of the 1970s, you you know you no longer have, not even in the South, public legislative opposition to homosexuality. It's still illegal many, many places. It will be illegal in Texas, for example, until the Supreme Court hands down Lawrence v. Texas decades later. But what you get by the 70s are public announcements of what is beginning to be called pride. And in places like Miami Beach, particularly, this is public and at certain times of the year, ubiquitous. So this is the beginning, I think, of the idea that certain parts of America are just moral no-go zones for certain Americans. So in the same way that you wouldn't move to some neighborhood because it's too dangerous. Well, why is it too dangerous? Like, where are the cops? Like, what's the city doing? You know, in in the same way, well, we wouldn't move there because they don't share our values. Well, what, what exactly are your values? And like we were talking about last time, you begin to ask this question. I mean, we do have to agree on certain basic things, right? You know, and so that that negotiation over what those basic things are and therefore what is actually permissible for daily life or what can your children see either as a parade goes by or on TV or on the internet now that that problem and therefore conflict over it becomes all the more intense so Anita Bryant starts a campaign called Save Our Children the reason she does that is that still in the 1970s you can appeal to the idea that is let's say, a common sense of the matter, and therefore common sense, that homosexuality is essentially a a love of children, especially in men, and therefore is a social threat in addition to wrong or unnatural in and of itself. So it's, it's usually called legally at the time a crime against nature. But there's also the sense that she can appeal to just in the slogan of her organization that this is this endangers children. So this is something that two decades earlier, when it was revealed about this or that, you know, elementary school teacher in Alachua County, Florida, was horrible and terrifying to everybody. And immediately the man is fired and punished and blah, blah. sort of sort of like if you worked for a Silicon Valley company and you said, I think marriage is between one man and one woman. I mean, you're done. You're just done. So in the 50s, you're just done. In the 70s, maybe you're not just done if that gets revealed, but it's still a problem. And most people have a sense that it's a problem, especially for children. So she runs this campaign called Save Our Children. What Stacey Brockman's trying to do in putting Anita Bryant at the epilogue of a book that's ostensibly about kind of obscure legislative activity in a single state is connect the reaction against liberation of various kinds with a time before 
that liberation. So she's trying to basically tell a coherent story from, you know, a time of a different set of pieties to a time of a to- of of shifting pieties. We're now way on the other side of that, right? So if I wanted to campaign against gay marriage, which Republicans aren't even doing at this point, and I wanted to make sure that I appealed to the public, one thing I probably wouldn't do would be to just openly talk about how homosexuality is pedophilia. (laughs) Because people have a completely different set of pieties. It doesn't mean that they're right. It simply means that their presumptions about life are not, as you said earlier, Jonathan, they're not based on what they've seen or observed or sense. They're based on what they have been told. So if they've been told love is love and they're people just like you and people are people and blah, 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 it doesn't, real life doesn't matter because they've been so well indoctrinated. It's a really interesting moment in the 60s and 70s as these things change, but people are still speaking in this tone that I I, I find conservative people or let's say right-wing people still using, but it, it sounds increasingly shrill, as you sort of said earlier, but it also sounds to me hollow. I don't, I don't think it was in the 70s, but it sounds hollow now, which is, don't we all know this? Don't we know this is wrong? And it's like, no, we don't. <laughs> we don't know. We have no idea. Many of us have been raised to believe that it's, in fact, the most right thing that there is because it belongs to a a group or a class or a, a narrative or something protected by a certain set of pieties. So Anita Bryant is the last gasp of this, specifically in, in Florida state politics for that time. What's interesting about Florida is that this nomenclature of red state, blue state doesn't exist at the time. So... Florida is at the time, from the beginning of the Johns Committee all the way through Anita Bryant, it, it's it's generally a, a pretty democratic state because it's a southern state. As that begins to change, it changes in a in a red direction that 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 the whole South follows from the seventies onward. But that change is also driven by particularly Cuban voters who are anti-communist who identify anti-communism with the Republican Party. As that begins to change, the reason that many of us grew up thinking of Florida as a swing state is because it was caught between this older model of politics where if you vote for a Democrat, that doesn't mean that you're approving of the murder of children or or gay marriage or anything. It probably has mostly to do with economics. And if you vote for a Republican, it, it doesn't mean a whole lot morally either. To the model where where we now are, where the parties are are proxies for understandings of life, proxies, not realities, just proxies, but they are indeed proxies for people's understandings of life. And to me, one of the fascinating changes is that back in the 50s, you have civil pieties and they are generally shared. So no one's getting up in public and saying that homosexuality is good. They're either saying it's horrible or they're trying to act like it's not really a problem. Somewhat similar to pedophilia today. Okay. What changes over time is that what used to be just decried or silenced is now celebrated and shouted. And you are now the problem if you deny that celebration or or want to, to clamp down on people's celebration 
So that shift to me is the real shift. It's not a shift of this state went blue or this state went red. It's that things that in the 1950s, not just in Florida, but also in Oregon and California and Massachusetts would not even have been mentioned in public now are accepted by most people on some level. That, that's the real shift. So it's, it's, it, it's reflected in politics. It has a political side to it. It has some facet that relates to who won, what, where, and how. But it's, it's not really like, I, I, I can't fix that by voting for Ron DeSantis. I, I can't fix that by voting for Trump. So something that's been happening uh, that's been interesting to observe is the the rise of same-sex attracted men in Republican politics, Proud Boys, in fact, right, as in the news. Uh-huh. Um, and, and effectively, uh, if I can best construction this, um, uh, freedom-loving, constitution-toting, um, traditionally sexual deviants. Yeah. Um, and and yet they really do put themselves forward as wanting to be part of what amounts to a, a, a traditionalist's view of this country's identity. And if I'm taking uh, what you're saying, you're, you're saying this is sort of an impossibility. It's, yeah, it's, to- it's completely impossible. Yeah. yeah. But then these individuals you- are like a paradox in themselves, right? I mean, obviously they're confused. I mean, I think that should go without saying, right? They're, that's the right. point. They're confused. Right. Uh, yeah, but I, I, I think I think the idea that somehow they're defending something that is traditional or American or, or blah 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 constitutional. I mean, there there are ways to refute that from so secure these blessings to ourselves and our posterity. Yeah. <laughs> well, how do you get posterity? But even even if you don't want to make some sort of textual argument against these things, the issue is they it's it's like they are calling on old gods and those those gods are gone the things that supported those gods are gone so the yeah. idea that america exists because there are hard working intact families just normal that that's life that's how life is shaped families natural families why do i even need the adjective right obviously i need the adjective if that's gone, then the idea that like you're going to save that by whatever, cutting taxes or whatever it is that Kevin McCarthy is going to do for me is, I mean, it's just, it's stupid. It's simply, I mean, you have to be stupid to fall for that because it's, I mean, the entire, the entire, you know, mountain has been cut away and there's a little part of the cliff remaining as an overhang and you're standing on it and it's going to crumble in like 10 minutes, but you're jumping up and down like you own, you know, 500 acres of bountiful, beautiful land. It's not there. It's going to fall down. So when you're saying like red, blue, it's, I, again, I, the idea that we've suggested before that this is theater is I think most helpful. It's not unreal. So it's not like it like doesn't matter at all. Like it's completely fake. Like what did you have for breakfast today? I don't care. But the idea that it is a fix is what is unreal. That it is not somehow a reflection or a condemnation or an indictment of us that this is what we have to put up with. That's unreal. 
So when you're when you're thinking about these things, not only like you mentioned, uh, consider what is going on around you, but also consider the things that are larger and and m- much more real. So something your great grandpa could have said openly in a social gathering, you have to like mutter to your spouse in your own home and hope you turned your phone off. That's real. And it doesn't matter so much that your congressman is a Republican or your governor is a Republican or, you know, President Trump is trying to become president again. It doesn't matter that much if you can't say things that your grandpa knew that are still true, but you're not allowed to say them anymore. That's the much bigger change. And that's that's the change that not only can you track if you look into things like the Johns Committee, but it's things that we're going to see. I think it's especially poignant in churches because churches really do not have an interior intensive reason to change as drastically as they have. And we're starting with the Roman Catholic Church, not only because of its size, but basically because it has changed the most drastically of anything in its realm over the past 100 years. Oh, yeah, Vatican Vatican too, right? It, it was no small yeah. thing. But I was just about to bring up churches before yeah. you did in the sense yeah. of that, that places where you can't say things. Right. That, that seems to be the battleground that if, if and when, because— because Christians are going to notice that uh, the wind of, of desecration is blowing, they're going to want to do something about it. They're not going to just want to watch as uh, the city they live in burns down. So where do they go? What do they do? And yeah. to say, well, seek the community in which Christ is risen, in which that is proclaimed and witnessed to, and strive for a story, a narrative founded upon those scriptures in such a way that you are unafraid, that you walk at liberty, uh, a kind of liberty that uh, the Constitution of the United States cannot give you. As I say that, I have to kind of acknowledge that there's a lot of churches where, you know, you're just going to get some platitudes and be told to put a mask on. Uh, And... uh, that is that is to me far more disturbing than than the red trickle. As disappointing as right. as Carrie yeah. Lake's performance is, it's it, what what is most disappointing is that I cannot rely upon a brotherhood of of Christian men, be they Lutheran pastors or otherwise, be they uh, laymen in the churches or otherwise. I cannot rely on them to stand up and say, "This is evil. This is an evil thing. We, we don't let our children participate in this." And you, you fill in the blank what you want, but there, there's plenty there. Yeah, I mean, that is why the sifting process that we all began to sense in 2020, I think, has only just begun. We're not, we're not dealing with like a settled state of affairs in the same way that we are over something our church fought over in the 1970s, like the inerrancy of Scripture. I mean, no one's going to be publicly denying that theoretically anytime soon in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate. It's just not on the table right now. Women's ordination is not on the table right now, right? I'm not saying none of this can ever happen. I'm saying you generally don't fight over the thing that you just fought over. You fight over something else. And that something else is the sifting process that we are in right now, which generally relates to both in our church, but in all churches and, and 
beyond the church to things that would once seem basic, would once be taken for granted, the kinds of things that you might teach a three-year-old about, you know, God gave her her fingers and toes or something. These fingers and toes, not others, herself, not turning into something else when she gets old enough. So those ideas and their ramifications in daily life are what we are sorting out, right? We are in a kind of revolution of daily life. And the decision before every one of us is whether we are revolutionaries or counter-revolutionaries. If we are counter-revolutionaries, then what sort of a counter-revolution are we waging? The mistake that counter-revolutionaries often make is that they can agree on their enemy, but they, they can't agree on their friends. And the white side in the Russian Civil War, the counter-revolutionaries in the French Revolution, and many similar, consumed one another in addition to being consumed by you know, revolutionary action. They also fought one another in various ways. So, you know, it's a time of sorting. It's a time of change. It's a time of new or emergent alliances. And none of that has too much overlap. And sometimes it has none with the ebb and flow of electoral politics, especially in the new era of ballot harvesting extraordinaires throughout the United States, especially through mail-in voting. And so, you know, I mean, attaching yourself to a movement, to a set of people, to a sense of change or promise, that's that's fine. I mean, in order to get new things started, you have to do that. You don't have to think that that will all come in the forms and on the terms that have been familiar to all of us. Because when you're dealing with a revolution of daily life, then you're dealing with a world where things that you think are normal instead have to be taught to other people. And, you know, that that's as may be, right? Teach them to be what you used to think was normal because it's actually good. And so in that case, it's like, I, you know, it's red trickle, red wave, whatever. I, I'm not even using the term conservative anymore because I'm not trying to conserve something. I'm trying to take things back. I'm trying to bring more things under the dominion of Christ. I, I'm not trying to conserve anything particularly. I don't I don't need to conserve, you know, mysterious crypto problems, a potential war in Eastern Europe and gay everything. I don't need to conserve that at all. Yeah, some of this uh, multiple times throughout this hour has made me think of the Jewish community in New York that was uh, under investigation because their kids can't do the yep. standardized mm -hmm. testing. Yeah, and and I don't want to say I'm jealous of them. That's that's really the wrong <laughs> word. But like, there's something just aspirationally awesome about them being like. I'm trying to think of the the, the right vernacular to say this. You know, it it really is flipping the bird to everything. And saying, uh, no, we're right, and we're not going to move. We're going to do what we do. Yeah. And, and, and go yeah, ahead. go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say, just like Christians, come on. Come on. <laughs> yeah, I, I, think, I think that is largely to do with Christians' sense. I hear this in Christians. I hear this when white people talk about non-white people. I hear this in all kinds of ways where 
you're still talking like you have power, but you don't, but it's like you don't even know that you don't. And and Christians talk that way because I think they think they're some kind of majority. And I don't think even in red states, the practicing Christians are some kind of majority mm-hmm. and not even just of the electorate, I mean, of the population. And that's that's not something that's like, oh, no, we're slipping. You know, I, I, I mean, it's very important the way that you frame your own story. And if you think, well, you know, 67% of people in whatever, name your red state, are not Christian, and, and it's even worse in Maine, and it's even worse in Washington, then why don't you do something about that? I mean, why why are you taking all of this as you were declining and declining and declining and declining, and now here you are, so now you have to learn to live with decline? I mean, that that, that doesn't build or rebuild a country, whether you're looking to build something new or rebuild this one or whatever kind of your take on history is. You're not going to build a single thing by talking about how you're in decline or things are in decline or none of that functionally matters. You know, you need you need a more daring spirit than that to do anything. So if you're going to do something, then go ahead and and build or rebuild or whatever it is that you're doing on whatever level in whatever realm, but but don't talk like you're sort of still in control, but and because that's going to prevent you from actually asserting yourself. The Hasidim assert themselves because what's their other option? <laughs> you know, I mean, the the neighborhoods they live in in Brooklyn, like their their political, you know, neighbors would be like Bengalis, Chinese. I mean, these are not people who know or care anything about them. So if they don't assert themselves, they get zero. Right. And I think that a lot of people whine and complain about the future and the past and the present because they think if they whine or complain, someone will help them. They've learned to be, this is maybe another way to think about this question of passivity where you should be active. They've learned to be petulant children. Yeah. So they so they just talk about their problems. Literally nobody cares. I mean, it doesn't matter. Like my shoulder hurts. I'll do something about it. What What if, if I complain to you for 10 minutes, it's not going to stop hurting just because I complained for 10 minutes. So when they think about life, they're still thinking in this mode like they are a favored child or someone cares or something like that. Or if, you know, and, and the someone who cares might be the Republican Party or it might be their church body or it might be whatever it is that they're hoping in. And then it's revealed that zero people care. <laughs> You're living in the United States of apathy and nobody cares. Opposite of love is not hate. It's apathy. And so, but they're complaining. It's like they didn't realize that was the case. You would build if you not only loved something, but you also realized that no one else really did. You're listening to A Brief History of Power. You know where to find us or you wouldn't be here. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable, a college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran, a college that won't take a dime of federal funding, a college that teaches the best of our Western heritage, a college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College, a college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, 
natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, Our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest.